Why do so many church pastors burn out? And what does it take to become a flourishing pastor? Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and welcome to the God Story podcast, episode 43. Today, we're joined by Tom Nelson, the president of Made to Flourish, a network that seeks to empower pastors to lead churches that produce human flourishing for the common good. Tom has also served as senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Leewood, Kansas, and he's the author of a number of books, including Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work, and his latest one from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, which is the one we're on now, is The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. And Tom joins me now on Zoom from the States. Tom, hi to you. It's a delight to be with you, bro. It's a pleasure for us to have you on the show, sir. Now, what makes a flourishing pastor? Well, it's a great question, but I think one thing is that I would say that pastors who lead well are well-led. And and this is the paradox of leadership that Jesus gives us and the scriptures give us. We tend to think of leadership as I'm out there leading, but first we need to be well-led by the good shepherd himself. Yes. Is the the art of uh, shepherding, pastoral shepherding, a lost art? Well, you know, lost may be a little excessive, maybe in pockets, but I think it needs to be rediscovered on a larger scale. Uh, and uh, the reason why is because I've had you know 30 some years of pastoral experience in a local church. So I've known the ups and downs, the bumps and bruises and my own failures and successes. So out of that experience, I wrote this book uh, with the goal of trying to help uh, younger pastors and other pastors, also other leaders, just Christian leaders, uh, have a more sustainable, flourishing life of following Jesus and of leading others toward Jesus. So I think we have some, we can talk about that, some faulty paradigms or impoverished paradigms about leading, uh, especially as pastors or Christian leaders, that I think we need to have some correction and have a more uh, biblical and more flourishing and sustaining way of seeing pastoral leadership, which is what the book is about. Mm. Well, why do we need, we keep reading about pastors burning out and some even taking their own lives? I was ast- shocked and appalled to find out about this, but why do so many pastors burn out or feel they have to leave the ministry? Uh, it's a great question. I think it's a, a you know multifaceted question. First of all, to be fair, I don't want to give a simple, too simple of an answer, but I think a couple of things I would simply say for uh, your listeners' consideration. One is that many pastors who feel called to their work, their idea of their calling, the enterprise to which God has ushered them into, that picture, that paradigm is impoverished. Uh, and I address these. I think many pastors are well-meaning, but the imagination in their minds and hearts of what God has called them to be and do, that's where it starts. That, that's where burnout and disaster starts. It's I always say, you know, sheep are not only lost, but shepherds can be lost too. If they have uh, a paradigm that does not guide them to sort of a North Star, a good compass setting. So that, and also, you know, their own histories. Um, we all bring uh, many different uh, historical dynamics into our pastoral journey, our family of origin, our traumas, our longings, our desires, our disordered loves, and pastors are not perfect, but they bring with them a bunch of other things that needs formation. So I would say, a paradigm adjustment, and then continued spiritual formation and virtue formation that allows them to lead over the long haul. Yeah, it is part of the problem the celebrity culture in parts of the modern church? Uh, yes, I would say so. In fact, I think that's one of the paradigms I critique the strongest in the book. Um, there's something about, um, you know, our, 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 our hearts, 
we we long as as deeply loved, uh, redeemed in Christ, but we are broken and we are very seduced by uh, the different uh, allurements of our disordered heart. And one of those is fame and power uh, and cameras and visibility and huge followers on our Twitter can really distort our perspective. So yes, this is an increasing problem. Uh, but I, I say in the book, you know, you don't have to be uh, a big frog to dwell, uh, you know, in a big pond. Sometimes there are big frogs in little ponds. So it's not the size often of the, you know, stage or platform. It's actually the problem of the heart. It's the size of the ego. So we are seeing the damage, you know, not only to the church and well-meaning people and to our witness in the world as followers of Jesus, we're seeing damage to the individual pastors and their families because we weren't called, you know, by Jesus to be a celebrity. We were called to be a servant. He didn't hand us a brand. He handed us a basin and towel. And we just got to think about that a lot. Yeah, so we should be thinking about servant leadership, shouldn't we? Indeed, we should. And that's that's the transformation of Jesus' leadership. Even his, in his days, leadership. Remember, Jesus, the disciples wanted to be one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus critiqued the sort of going, the Gentile leadership paradigm, like, right? The Gentiles lorded over you. They're hierarchical. They're power, right? Power. And they smush you down, you know, to compliance or coercion. And the, actually, the Greek text in, in the New Testament, Jesus' response is just like, I can imagine him sticking his finger, you know, like, not you. It's very emphatic, not you. The greatest is to be a servant. He turns it upside down. But power and fame, uh, these things can be very alluring. And all of us are susceptible to that. Yes. I wonder if, if some of our churches are just putting too much pressure on pastors. Yes, I think that's very true, especially in contexts where... Uh, the church congregation imagines pastoral leadership and it's, I'll use the word success in terms of bigger and more cultural numbers, like we call it, you know, the, the bodies building bucks brand. And so some of it's congregational expectations that are disordered, but transparently, my friend, it's like, I've, I've been, had the privilege of serving a congregation for almost 32 years from when we were very small, two of us in an apartment to we're much larger now. But I have to say the biggest challenge is not congregational expectations or comparison that they have a me to a pastor who has a larger church down the road. It's mostly internal. I mean, it's mostly our own insecurity and our disordered loves. And this drives us to a toxic kind of frenzy and a hurried life. And yeah, it, there's a lot of toxicity to it. It doesn't mean that getting bigger or more, have more platform is intrinsically evil. It's just harder to handle all that. And uh, we were drawn into that. So much of the issue is us. I mean, transparently, that, that we have our own issues of identity and significance, and we live that out um, in ways that are very toxic. What's your advice to young pastors who find themselves in very prominent ministries at a very early age and with great, a great deal of visibility? Yeah, uh, I, I was in that context many years ago, maybe not massive visibility, but I discovered the importance. And I, you know, I had a mixed motive. All, all, all people have mixed motives. I'm not trying to say I'm perfect, but I intentionally moved to obscurity. I intentionally recognized the danger of a platform of influence and ministry that my character depth could not sustain. I needed more time under the waterline of formation of humility. Uh, and again, I'm not saying I'm all arrived yet. I mean, don't, please understand that, but, but, 
when I was 25, I did have a lot of visibility at 27, very young in ministry kind of things. And so part of my answer and part of God's call in my life was to move from a place of visibility to obscurity. So we began, we moved to Kansas City, a city we didn't know, moved into an apartment, my lovely wife and I, and we began where nobody knew us except for God. And we learned to live and serve before an audience of one. So I'm saying the answer, the most important antidote for a younger pastor is what we find in Psalm 78, because it says in that David and David messed up, of course, he's not perfect, but the picture is God chose David as servant. If you look at Psalm 78, 70 through 72, this is, you know, this is the main paradigm, main framework of the book. But God chose David as servant and took him. Notice the, notice the verbs. Took him from the sheepfold and the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his own people, and Israel's own inheritance. It was, it was in that obscure wilderness of caring for true smelly sheep <laughs> where nobody knew was the, where his integrity, his heart, his intimacy with God was forged. So I'm just saying obscurity is never an obstacle to God's will for your life. Often it's a great bridge to it. It's a great avenue. It's not a detour. So long answer, but we need to understand the importance of obscurity, the goodness of obscurity and the challenges of visibility. We've got that turned upside down. Yes, this is important for young pastors or for any leader in any form of life to be an apprentice. Yes, indeed. And I think that's, that is the model that Jesus teaches us and, you know, one of the things that's really important, and again, your listeners are around the world, but um, in, a, in my context, okay, in my more Western United States context, much of our educational thinking is built around gaining information. I won't use knowledge. Gaining information in a classroom, in a book, uh, in a video. And these are good things. This is called propositional knowledge. We need that. But what's missing is much of our transformation is tacit knowledge. That's the knowledge that cannot be put in words, but is caught between a master and apprentice. Jesus modeled this. So I'm just saying apprenticeship is the main modeling transformation that Jesus models, and it's how we are transformed in the context of community, apprentice and community. So I love the word apprenticeship because it's comprehensive. It's not just, I'm going to dump a bunch of information in your head, right? I'm the mentor, you're the, you know, you're the novice. But Jesus models that, and it's rich with tacit knowledge. And one last thing I would say is that from a Hebrew standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, the Hebrew text understood that the primary idea of knowing, we know things in many ways, right? How we gain information or cognition. But biblically, the Jewish Torah, foundation of the Bible understood that the primary idea of knowing is the word yada. We used to get, you get Yoda from that if you're a Star Wars fan, right? The one who knows. Why the one who knows? Yeah, yeah. But it means first, not just to know something, but to know someone. That knowing is fundamentally and most importantly, epistemically, a relationship. And that sets the trend all the way through the scriptures. I'm just saying apprenticeship is about, first and foremost, not just content that we learn, it's about a relationship we indwell with someone else. And of course, the primary one is Jesus. And he invites us into his yoke of apprenticeship in Matthew 11, which is a picture of apprenticeship. So it's important then for uh, young church leaders, apprentices to find their Yodas. <laughs> yes, they're imperfect. Not like first Jesus in scripture. That's our first one. And he teaches us. But yes, indeed. And in community, we should be looking for others. Paul said, you know, I have my, you know, Paul has his Timothy and Timothy has his others that he teaches, right? Yeah. 
That's a really good example, actually, isn't it? Because I love Paul's yeah. advice to Timothy. Yeah, mm. the things you've heard from me, Second mm. uh, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses. Notice it's in community; it's not isolation. The things you've heard from me, you entrust these to others who will be faithful and teach that to others. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you. You mentioned community. In what ways should ministry be a communal experience? Yeah, again, very great question. And I would go back to God's design all the way through Scripture and creation that the triune God in that mystery of oneness and community makes human beings in his image, right? In the image of God, he made them. And this main Hebrew idea in this image is Salem, and it means both connection and reflection. The connection idea is that we are deeply relational creatures because we are made in the image of a relational God. So I'm, I'm just tr trying to capture that sense that there's a deep relational aspect that is vital in terms of transformation. We were created with community in mind, with God, with others, and with creation. So community is really essential. And our spiritual life, our formation, our leadership is not in isolation. I don't know if your listeners have, have uh, seen this little um, documentary, but it's one of the most amazing things. Alex Honnold, this climber, climbed El Capitan, which is this multi-thousand foot granite wall in the United States in mm. Yosemite Park. And he did it without any ropes. You know, it's one of the most amazing feats. I mean, he practiced, but here's this human fly climbing up this for like three hours. He doesn't fall, thankfully. But you know, that image of the kind of free solo climber, you know, that may be heroic for him, but that's not how we were designed. I mean, we, we are so deeply embedded in community. So I'm just saying many of us have sort of this free solo mindset as uh, people and as leaders. And that's, that is not the path to flourishing. We lead in community. We lead for community. We're accountable. Uh, we're not isolated. So how then can we form uh, shepherd leaders? Well, I, I think uh, forming shepherd leaders is, first of all, we need to see in scripture that even, even though many of us are separated from an agrarian shepherding, we don't, a lot of us don't, aren't dealing with sheep, right? But we need to see and translate this to our own context, that that's the primary metaphor of leadership in scripture. So how do we translate that, right? Well, first of all, we need to see it embodied in others. So again, it kind of goes back to your Yoda language. We need to be well-led for us to learn to lead. So we need to find those leaders in our vocations, our cultures that are further than us. And I think it's a pretty true axiom. I think you agree with me, but you don't really lead others further than you've gone yourself, right? I mean, it's just, that's just a pretty basic thing, whether it's our spiritual formation, our character, our skill. So I think it's really vital that books are great and I write books and books are helpful and other videos and like your podcast. But at the end of the day, we grow most in an incarnational way as we model and observe others who are following Christ and leading well. And that's why I keep saying, we talk so much about leading. I want to know how well we follow. That's the first thing I want to know about someone. How well do you follow Christ first and others around you? Is it important for good leaders to be good followers? I, I think it's the foundation. And I would say, you know, this is my, my view, and I don't want to overstate the case, but we tend to think uh, in many, at least in my cu cultural context, that leadership is best indicated, I'll use that word, or defined by influence. You know, people say, well, if you're a leader and you say you're a leader and you're out leading and no one's following, you, you're taking a walk, right? <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not that at all. But I don't think leadership is first influence. 
Biblically, I think leadership is first followership. So I, I think that's what's taught by Jesus in scripture. And that takes longer to learn how to follow well. So I'm saying, I think that's the foundation of leadership. And it sounds paradoxical, but much of scripture, much of Jesus' teaching is paradoxical, right? To be great, you are a servant, right? So there's so much paradox in his kingdom. And I think leadership, kingdom leadership is paradoxical too. Um, and I think it's learning how to follow. I'm much more concerned that I, I have a teachable attitude, that I'm learning with others, that I'm listening well, that I'm intellectually curious, that I can learn from anyone. I have a posture, not of like, hey, I figured it all out. I'm the big guy. It's like, I'm here to learn with you. And that's remarkably transformational in a culture. In what ways is a, a pastor an artist? Oh, <laughs> Yes. Well, uh, we could talk about neuroscience here for a moment. Um, Please do. Well, well but, I, but I mean, this is a really important new understanding we have, although however limited, is that God designed us with two hemispheres in our brain. And without going into a lot of details, many of us, including me in my training, uh, and a wonderful book by Ian, um, I lost his name right now, The Master's Emissary, it'll come to me has done a whole bunch of work on how culture has been overly shaped by the West, in the West at least, by the left brain hemisphere. Now we need to be integrated, right? They both matter. And uh, so all I have to say, I don't wanna to go too far there, but the, the right hemisphere is that aspect that gives us this kind of artistry of intuition and time. It helps us really lead. So I will go back to the ancient Hebrews. You know, the ancient Hebrews were really smart. And most of what we discover now, the ancient Hebrews already knew. Maybe not with its technology, but the Hebrew writers understood that this idea of leadership is an art. Let me give you just one example. In Psalm 78, again, verse 72, which the book is built on one verse. I've never done a book on one verse, but it's so powerful. It says, David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. So the Hebrew text of that phrase translated in English something like skillful hands is actually this, this idea, Tovana uh, Yod, is actually more an art. You could say he, he led with artistry hands, an art form. Because leadership for many of us, have been hearing, these are the five steps you do, this, 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 you put it all together and you know, shazam, everything turns out. Now we can learn you know, technical skills and how to lead, that's part of good competency. But leadership is much more right brain, right hemisphere, I'll use that language. It's much more intuition. Um, it's much less certain. It's much more mysterious. It's much more in the moment. It's deeply relational. It's high emotional intelligence. Yes, it has a sort of logical strategy analysis of the left brain hemisphere, but I'm just saying it's when you, when you look at Jesus and how he led and Jesus is the most brilliant leader who ever walked this earth uh, and the greatest leaders, they have a high artistry of emotional intelligence, awareness, a deep people understanding of people around them and so much tacit knowledge, it cannot be just codified in some propositional language. So I do in the book, I talk a little bit about artistry and particularly from Genesis about cultivating culture, that leadership is so much cultivating an environment where people can flourish, where other can, people can flourish around you. So uh, we can talk more about that, but, but I think that's more the artistry. Um, it's not real, it's not high uncertainty, it's not a high, arrogance. It's a humble kind of artistry and forming uh, and moving an organization, an institution, a business in, in uh, ways that bring uh, goodness to that 
institution, goodness that people and the environment in which it is in. Yeah. How do we cultivate a flourishing church culture? Yeah. Well, again, that's a really powerful question. I, I try to address a little of that. I think, first of all, um, that in many ways, servant leadership, the organization or the culture is really an extension, maybe a shadow of that leader community. I'll say leadership community, not just one, of how they have modeled the values and virtues that matter to them. So I would say the first thing is, is that we clarify what our values are, because culture is deeply value driven. Its values sometimes are codified in artifacts and metaphors. So I speak in the book quite a bit about the role of metaphor, casting metaphor, of finding artifacts that embody that culture from memory. Uh, but I would say the first thing is that we need to clarify good core values of the culture. What, what, who are we? What matters most to us? How then do we live that out with consistency? But as leaders, servant leaders, we have to articulate it, clarify it, and we have to model it in our daily living, how we treat people in all facets, all our stakeholders, all the people we encounter. So it's a lifelong process. And the larger organization you get, the more diluted it can get. So you're continually trying to weave in cultural values and goodness in an organization. So it's multifaceted. It's a really brilliant question. It's a very important question. And I think it's one of the most important learnings, ongoing learnings, relearnings and unlearnings of humble servant leadership. I've never, I've never been done learning how to nourish a good culture. It's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment reality. But it's, it's kind of like people talk about pornography. I use, I use a negative example. It's hard to define it perfectly, but you know when you see it and you experience it. So a healthy culture is something people experience. And I talk about telling travel stories and things like that in the book, but I think it's one of the most important stewardships I have as a pastor or as a servant leader in any organization is to model our culture, to nourish it, to speak about it, and to clarify it. How does a pastor, thinking of a younger pastor or any pastor indeed, they come into a church with a very toxic church culture? How how do they begin to turn, I'm thinking of practical things, how do they begin to turn toxic church cultures around? Okay, first of all, I've not been in that. So I'm just in my own personal knowledge, um, personal experience, I've never been in the context of that, Uh, not to minimize the prevalence of that. I work with a generation of young pastors. We do a residency. So I'll, I'll, I'll learn and share some vicarious thoughts of other people that have been in those spaces. At this point, I've never been personally, incarnationally in that. So I just want to be transparent there. I know it's very common. And many of our listeners maybe uh, have been in it in many ways. I, I see that in business. I see that in education. I see toxic cultures everywhere. Oh, it's everywhere, yes. But the church, the church is very much a part of that. Um, so a couple of things I would say, and again, not having personal firsthand immersion. I've had 30 years of pastoral experience of, of ups and downs and churches, but I've never really been in a toxic culture. So a couple of things I would say might be helpful. There might be not a lot of wisdom. So I'll let your listeners. One, one is that um, I think you have to prayerfully discern, give yourself some time to try to listen well understand the history of that institution or organization or church, right? Try to get a bead on what has led up to this. It's like 
when you're a mental health professional, at least under some theories, you look very carefully at family of origin. You look very carefully at early memories that form you, right? I mean, I have that. I have some trauma in my early days. I lost my dad. You know, it's like, so I think that's true. If you go into any, like a pastor goes into a church, know that, try to understand the history. Try to ask people first, like what shaped, shaped this culture? What shaped things? What traumas? What conflict, right? Try to get a history. I guess I would just say, if I were, you know, don't assume, make sure you have a pretty good sense. What is the history? And then I just try to identify where is that history manifests itself in broken relationships and talks, you know, uh, dysfunction and things like that, the synergist kind of things like that. And try to try to identify where do we, where do I see that? And then look at it and say, this is what I would do. Look at it and say, are there a couple areas that I can address? They may not be able to. I mean, uh, one of my friends on a panel recently on a conference I was speaking at said, you know, there's some things as a pastor you just can't fix. And that's probably true of all of us. We need to realize that what it might not be fixable. I just want to give a little hope for realism. I, I don't know how to, if it's so toxic, it may not be able to be fixed. Having said that, I think Jim Collins in his brilliant book, Good to Great, a leadership guru, has said, wherever you go, try to establish a pocket of greatness in your own domain. Then, you know, we all have different power bases to influence. So you go into a toxic environment, you may have very little power to change it. You, you may have more power if you're in, in the lead position or something, but as a pastor, you may not have much power, um, you know, and you want to use your power well. So I'm saying, I think then you'd have to do, say, should I stay? Can I stay? Will it, will it uh, destroy me? I mean, there can be some toxic cultures that will just destroy us. But, but if you stay, then where can I create a pocket of greatness around what I can change? So I, I've never been there. So I just want to be a little more humble that way. I mean, a lot of times I can speak out of experience where I've been in a really toxic culture. I've not been, but these are things that I would suggest that other people have wisely spoken into my life might be helpful. Yes, thank I you. Pray a lot. Pray a lot. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's really hard when you're in a really toxic place. Yeah, it it, it is, and really for in any in any workplace, do it, our churches has, spend too little time? Do you think equipping us for our work and our workplace cultures? Oh my, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so my my story here, part part of our lives, you know how God, the mysterious work of God in our lives, all of our lives, if we're followers of Jesus is that God is so great and big, he can take our greatest failures for his greatest glory. And I'm, I'm an embodiment of that in this matter. So I committed, I've been a pastor, privileged to pastor for almost 33 years now. In the early years of my pastoral work, I committed pastoral map practice. Now, that may sound a little dramatic. It wasn't because, thankfully, I committed financial malfeasance or moral improprieties. But I came to the realization that I was, I was equipping my congregation, right? Because we're called, pastors called to equip, encourage, and comfort their congregation for the work they're called to do every day. But I was equipping my congregation for the slimmest minority of their life, like this slim. I was much more focused on how well I did on Sunday than how well they lived and flourished on Monday. When I came to that conclusion, you know, out of theological conviction, because I realized I'd missed so much in scripture about the importance of work and equipping God's people for their work as a pastor. Then I made some major changes. So out of those ashes of my failure, I wrote a book called Work Matters, 2008 or something like that. 
uh, as a pastor, I was one of the early ones to do that. So there's other good books, Tim Keller's a friend. I mean, other good books as well, but trying to help pastors connect faith and work. And out of that, I was extruded into a national conversation in some level with some people across the pond, like, hey, I'm not the only one that's missed this. We've got to equip people for their majority of their life. And most of our sermons, illustration, prayers, we don't even talk about people's work. We don't even know about their work. All that to say, Made to Flourish, the organization I serve as well as pastor, was birthed out of the need for pastors to help more strategically, lovingly, inform, in an informed way, really equip their congregation for their Monday world. And of course, that's multifaceted, but a big part of Monday world is work, whether it's paid or non-paid. So yes, and I do a chapter in the book about whole life discipleship mm-hmm. of the importance of this integration. So but yes, I, I get a little animated there because that's been a big part of my failure. And God has been gracious to let me uh, redeem some of that failure as a pastor. Well, I completely cottoned on to this part of the book when I got to it and, th- and thought, hooray, somebody at last. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are trying to make a difference on that. Uh, a friend of mine said, we're trying to put a dent in it. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, people uh, come and say, uh, said to a friend of mine, um, that's the first sermon I've ever heard from a pulpit on a Sunday that actually addresses what happens to me when my boss, I walk into my boss's office on a Monday morning. Yes. No, but I mean, this is, it's humorous, but it's deeply tragic and it's unbiblical. I mean, I'm just saying we need to pray and help our pastors, which we're trying to do think more theologically and missionally and pastorally to really understand how does faith speak into where our people are and the challenges the injustices, right? The brokenness, the joys of work. Yes, I wonder, we were just about out of time, but I, I need to ask you this question. How, how can we best teach people to navigate, particularly ethics in the workplace? It's such a massive issue these days. Yes, Where do we even uh, start? Great question. Well, first of all, what I would say, uh, and it, it, it's not a simple thing because there's complexity. I, I spoke to a group of um, church leaders in the States a few years ago and it was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And some of your listeners may not know, but that's one of the places where uh, we have a lot of our nuclear weapons made as a nation. So I'm just give you an example. And that, that's an extreme example, but from biological, right, ethical issues with biology, right, and technology. But these deeply committed Christian engineers were employed in Los Alamos. And they're asking the question, when does a, a weapon move from moral to immoral? Right. I mean, like, can I make a gun for protection? There's seen, when does it, I'm just giving a picture of complexity. Hmm. So what pastors shouldn't do or we shouldn't do is give simplistic reductionistic answers. Right. But I think what we can say is the Bible does give principles and you discover that in a wise community. We all need a wise community of people around us to help us process the brokenness of our workplace, the tensions of the already not yet, an approximation of what we do. And last thing I would say is we need to cultivate the presence of Jesus with us. Jesus is with us in that Monday place. Monday is the primary place of worship, not Sunday. And it's the primary place where Jesus is present. I mean, not primary, but Jesus is present. And he gives us wisdom if we seek him in having decisions that we need to make and how we treat people. So it's a really big question But I would say, I think our greatest challenge on the ethical struggle is more of a struggle of we practice deism. We we think a lot about God on Sunday. 
uh, or in some private spiritual devotion time, but we forget how important Jesus' presence, his guidance, his love, his wisdom is available to us on Monday. Remember James, his half-brother of Jesus, that's how I see it, said, you know, if we lack wisdom, let him ask, let's ask of God who will give to us generous. And we need divine wisdom and we need it in community. We have to finish. Alas, Tom, thank you. It's been wonderful. Can you give us some, I mean, I know you've written a book on the workplace called Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work. Um, Can you give pastors listening or church leaders or any leaders listening or anybody listening uh, a couple of other resources they can go to to, if they want to put a a workplace program into their churches? Yeah, and I, I would I would direct them to Made to Flourish, the website. We have a mm-hmm. remarkable national network with all kinds of resources, right? From videos to conferences. So I mean, yeah. just, I would say Made to Flourish, and then I would also not in a self-serving way, but the book After Work Matters is the Economics and Neighborly Love, which helps people connect theology with modern economics and the challenges and joys of of an economic community of helping flourishing for everyone economically and globally. Thank you. Tom Nelson, uh, president of Made to Flourish, this network that seeks to empower pastors to lead churches that produce human flourishing for the common good. And we've been talking today about his latest one from IVP InterVarsity Press America called The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. Tom, the conversation has ranged far and wide. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It was delightful. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory Podcast.